The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Hebrews chapter 9. Continuing our discussion of and study of the New Covenant. In high school, I was uh, friends with an upperclassman, and um, one of the things I remember about him, he was, he was a funny guy. That's not all I remember about him. He had a car, and there's nothing unusual about the outside of the car. It was decent. It was nothing flashy, but it was fine. No major dents. It ran well. It was a decent car. What was unusual about this vehicle what was on, is what was on the inside. I don't know how it started. I don't want to know how it started. But he had allowed uh, garbage to pile up in the passenger seat to the point where it, it reached the window. Like, that's how high the garbage had reached. Soda cans, uh, cartons from meals, whatever it was, just regular trash, just throwing to the side, and it piled up to the point where you could see it looking in, and it came up to the window. That's how much trash had been uh, piled up in this passenger seat. And if you've ever lived in Montana, you know that spring, there's, there's a term for early spring. It's called dirty spring. And the reason it's called dirty spring is because all the sun comes and it starts to melt the snow. And all the snow melt causes things to get really dirty, especially the cars as you drive through dirty spring on the streets, uh, on the streets of Billings, Montana, your car's going to get really dirty. Well, his car would get really dirty, and he would take it through the car wash and get it clean, except the garbage never disappeared. It just remained uh, stuck in that passenger seat, and I don't know to this day why that was the case, but you could clean off his car on the outside and, and get it nice and even polish up the wheels and all that and polish the tires and make the outside re- look really nice, but that would have done nothing for the garbage that was sitting in the passenger seat. Fast forward a few years, and now Amy and I are in Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, that's, we're fast forwarding lots of years. Okay, so now we're in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm at seminary in graduate school. And one of my jobs in graduate school was to be a window cleaner. And it was, it was, it was a good job. I actually enjoyed it. But um, I remembered very distinctly one particular house. If you drove up to this house, you would have noticed it was in a, a beautiful neighborhood. The outside of the house was very pleasant. One is known as East uh, coast cottage style houses that everybody likes. It was just a very pleasant looking house. Had some nice greenery on the front. Just a, a nice house. And, I, and, and the job that I was called to do there was to give them the full window cleaning uh, treatment, which meant cleaning both sides of the glass, cleaning all the, the trim and the ledges and all of that. The whole, the whole window. And so I went and knocked on the door and the lady let me in and I couldn't believe what I saw. I, I trust I kept my composure. I hope I did. I hope I was professional. But as I made my way through the house, removing the screens and, and getting that, uh, the windows ready for cleaning, I noticed that every single room was in utter disarray. I'd never seen any, anything like it in, in all my life. Every room was completely disheveled, disorganized with stuff everywhere. And it wasn't that this house wasn't nice on the inside. They had nice appliances. They had nice furniture. It was a nice home. But the inside was a total mess. I remember some uh, jellied bread stuck on the microwave. I mean, it was just weird in, in how messy it actually was. And I understand, listen, 
if you've got kids, especially young kids, your house is going to look like a war zone some of the time. That's it, totally fine, right? But this house, is, it was clear that it was a perpetual disorder in this house. And so I went about my business, and I cleaned the windows and, and got the check and left. And when I left, you had a house that looked very nice on the outside with nice clean windows. But that was it. And it was just funny to me as I drove off because I thought, that house didn't need clean windows. That house needed a complete renovation on the inside. Someone needed to go inside and to completely clean out all the trash and get that place organized. It was a disaster area. And it just was funny to me that this person chose to just get their windows clean. That's all that they thought they needed. Now, maybe later on they were going to get the house uh, done and get a full cleaning. Perhaps. I don't know. But at least in my experience, they got something done that was pretty irrelevant, actually, to the overall condition of the home. They needed an interior cleaning, not just some windows cleaned. And uh, similarly, the author's point in our passage today is that the old covenant itself could only deal with the outside. It could only deal with externals of the worshiper. It could only offer an exterior car wash or window cleaning. That's all it could give you. It couldn't clean the inside of the worshiper. And as we'll see, it couldn't cleanse the conscience, most importantly. Last week, we had the privilege of going through Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, and considering five reasons why the new covenant is better than the old. Remember that? That was a delightful study. Five reasons why the new covenant is better than the old. Today, we have a simple three-point outline. I think the passage breaks up nicely into three distinct uh, paragraphs here. And they're all aiming at the conclusion in verse 14. So you want to draw your attention there. Verse 14 is really the conclusion that all of the verses prior to that verse are aiming at. The new covenant is superior to the old because it provides inward cleansing of our consciences. The new covenant is superior to the old because it provides an inward cleansing of our consciences. Let's look at the first five verses here. You'll, if, you'll, if you're taking notes and you have a bulletin, I have the outline there on the back. And I want us to note the heading I gave this paragraph. Outward form and temporary glory, the structure of the tabernacle under the old covenant. That's what's being described here in verses one through five. It's not a, it doesn't need a lot of exposition. In fact, the author is just doing that for us. All that he's doing really is describing the design of the tabernacle and the important elements of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was an important element of Old Covenant worship. In fact, it's what Old Covenant worship revolved around, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is what God told Moses to construct so that Israel could worship God according to his requirements. And then eventually the tabernacle would give way to the temple when Israel was in their own land. But they needed a tabernacle for now because they needed a mobile center of worship. They needed to be able to pack it up and move around because they were moving around. It wasn't until they got into their land that then they could establish and build a beautiful temple. Now, it's not immediately clear why the author focuses on the the tabernacle as opposed to the temple because the temple would have been around, obviously, when the author of Hebrews was writing, but it's not crucial to determine why he focuses on the tabernacle because the elements of both the tabernacle and the temple are the same, and the the procedure for sacrifice is the same between both. 
The only difference was that the temple was bigger and more ornate, but that was the only difference. In terms of basic structure, these two structures were the same, temple and tabernacle. So the author begins by first describing the structure of the tabernacle under the first covenant. He says in verse 1, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. And when he says first covenant, that should cause us to look back to the previous verse, verse 13 of chapter 8, where we ended last week. It said, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So this old covenant that was focused around the tabernacle, it is beginning to fade away. It is becoming obsolete. It is no longer needed, and therefore its actual physical presence can leave this earth. It's not needed anymore. But he does want to focus, it, focus on it a little bit in order to contrast it with the new covenant worship situation. So he says, now addressing the first covenant, the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. What I want us to notice is that this worship center under the old covenant, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, remember, both of them are the same in this regard, they focused on outward form. That was the aim, to have a beautiful, ornate worship center that people would see and recognize and go, whoa, something remarkable is going on here. Look at this amazing temple. Look at this elaborate tabernacle. It focused on outward form. There was a tent. There were physical elements for the worship. There were religious memorabilia, so to speak, from Israel's history. And this tabernacle that Moses was instructed by God to build had two sections, as he's pointing out here. The first section, we talked about this before, the first section that the priests could enter into is called the holy place. Okay, so this is basically two sections. The first two-thirds is called the holy place. And in that holy place, you had a lampstand and a table with the bread of the presence. And he's explaining these things here in verse 2. There was a tent, and it was prepared. The, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. The, the lampstand was made from pure gold, and it was formed out of one solid piece of gold, which is, I think, pretty cool. Uh, it had a center stem and then three stems on either side of that center stem for a total of seven stems. And it was to reflect or resemble an, a flowering almond tree. That's what it's supposed to look like. So again, this is, this is outward form and beauty. They were to take this, the forming of these pieces very seriously and to craft them into a, a beautiful setting. The table on which the bread of the presence sat was a wooden table overlaid with guess what? Gold, that's right. Lots of gold going on here. Uh, it was three feet long, uh, one and a half feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. And 12 loaves would sit on the table. That was the bread of the presence. And this bread was deemed holy, mean, meaning it was set aside for this particular purpose. It could only be used to set there inside that holy place. Wooden poles, also overlaid with gold, would then be used and slipped through golden rings on either side of the table so that the table could be transported from one place to the other. Why? Because you needed a mobile center of worship if you are moving through the wilderness through to the uh, promised land. But even this mobile, mobile tabernacle was ornate and outwardly beautiful. 
The outward splendor would be expanded and multiplied once the temple came along. I mean, you just read the description of that temple that Solomon had built and the amount of gold that was needed and, and fine wood that was needed to construct this temple is just astounding. God was focused on an outward beauty through the, in the Old Covenant. Now, that sec- section called the, the holy place, the, the, the place that housed the, the lamp and the, the table and the bread of the presence, but it was separated from the most holy place or the holy of holies by a large veil. And this veil was made from blue, purple, and scarlet dyed yarns that were woven with fine twined linen and then embroidered with images of the cherubim. And the cherubim were these creatures, these winged creatures, angels of some sort, maybe just winged creatures in the Old Testament that served as guards. You see that in Genesis 3.24, or they were worship attendants. You see that in Ezekiel chapter 10. And these creatures were embroidered on this big, beautiful veil that separated the a holy place from the most holy place. And the veil itself was supported by four pillars that were made of gold. That's right. Good. And then behind the veil were a few point, uh, and items. He says behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or literally in the Greek, the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant uh, covered on all sides with Gold, in which, in which a golden urn uh, holding the man and Aaron's staff that had budded in tablets of the covenant. Now, actually, this altar of incense was actually located in the holy place. It was right up against the veil. So it wasn't technically inside the Holy of Holies. But the language here that the author uses is similar to the way Solomon spoke in 1 Kings 6.22. So perhaps what he means here, I mean, this, the author of Hebrews isn't making a mistake. He clearly has strong uh, skill in handling the Old Testament scriptures. But what he probably means here by, by referring it to being in the Holy of Holies is that the incense itself would, would waft into the Holy of Holies. So in that sense, it was part of that... Uh, part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And again, I mentioned 1 Kings 6.22. Even Solomon kind of talks this way about the altar of incense. But just so that we're clear, the altar of incense was in the holy place right up against the veil. And it, that incense would waft into the holy or the most holy place. However, the Ark of the Covenant and the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff and the tablets of the covenant were all located in the Holy of Holies. And the ark itself was a big wooden chest overlaid entirely in gold. It, could be, it couldn't be touched by hand, so it had to be carried by poles similar to the table because you couldn't touch this uh, ark because it was considered holy, and it's where God's presence would come down and be among in that holy of holies. And so you would put these poles through it and so that the priests could carry this along as they moved from place to place. On top of the ark was called the mercy seat, and that was one solid piece of gold that fit perfectly on top of the ark. And sitting on top of the mercy seat were two cherubim who were kneeled down, face down, with their uh, uh, wings outstretched. And inside this large piece of furniture were, as he says, the uh, 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 ark of the covenant. It had uh, covered on all sides with gold. It had the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff and the tablets of the covenant. And if you remember in the book of Numbers, when the people were grumbling and they're saying that they didn't want Aaron to be 
the one who had authority over them. God was going to distinguish Moses and Aaron from the rest of the people. So what God did with Aaron's staff is he made it actually uh, blossom with ripe almonds. So that was pretty cool. And so that was a significant part of Israel's history. And so Moses commanded that Aaron's staff be placed back into the Ark of the Covenant. And based on the language here and the descriptions of this in uh, the Old Testament, it's, it seems as though there were times when these things would be put in the covenant or put in the ark, and there are times when it would be outside the ark. It's, 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 it seems like that's what was happening in the history of Israel. There are times when it would be in, and there are times it would be just outside of the ark. But all of it was in the Holy of Holies. That's the point. This was the basic structure and the content of the Old Covenant tabernacle. But the author only gives us an introduction. Because then he says, after he says, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he can't keep going into it, but the, the point that needs to be made is that all of this was focused on outward form. The tabernacle first and then the temple were lavish, ornate, and outwardly beautiful. Tasteful, but lavish, intentionally lavish. Outward beauty. So that's verses 1 through 5. I think it's really clear and straightforward the way the author has put this together. But now he needs to transition in talking about something else, and that's verses 6 through 10. If you, again, if you look at the, the headings on your bulletin, the next heading for verses 6 through 10 reads like this. Repetitive sacrifices and external washing, the work of the priests under the Old Covenant. And you might be thinking, Derek, those are long headings. Why would you do a thing like that? Well, because I want it to be very clear what the author is aiming at in each passage, because it is taking us to an important climax at verse 14. What is he getting at in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5? He's talking about the outward form and glory of the tabernacle. What is he getting at in verses 6 through 10? He's talking about the way the sacrifice were repetitive and the washing was only external. And that was the work of the priests under the Old Covenant. Let's look now in verse 6. <clears throat> These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. So once the tabernacle is set up, you know, you move from one place to the next. You've got to set up the tabernacle again. Once everything is set up, then the priests can go about their business. They would, the Levitical priests would go into the first section of the tabernacle. This is the holy place. And only Levitical priests could go in there. A Joe Schmo. Benjamite, Judaite, whoever, couldn't go into the holy place. Only Levitical uh, priests could go in. And their duties would have included changing the oil in the lamp, changing the bread of the presence, managing the incense, and all the daily offerings. And this would have happened daily according to all the instructions in the law. That was their job. That was their work. But the holy of holies, where God's presence was said to reside, that could only be entered once a year. And that could only be entered by a special Levitical priest, namely a Levitical priest who came out of Aaron's line. So Aaron was a Levite, but only Aaron's sons and descendants could serve as high priest. And he could only go in once a year. Well, what did the high priest do? Well, he'd partake in the regular priestly duties, but on that day of atonement, once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies, but only after an elaborate preparation and only in a particular way. And if he messed it up, guess what? 
you're dead, right? So that's what would happen if he didn't do this exactly the way that God described it and, and told him how to do it. Now, I think it's helpful to go back to Leviticus 16 and actually just read through the passage. I was thinking, how do I explain all that, that was happening? Oh, I got an idea. I'll go back to Leviticus 16, and I'll just let Moses do it for me. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to Leviticus 16, and we're just going to read. It's very self-explanatory, and it's going to explain to us what the high priest was in charge of doing on the Day of Atonement. And that's going to set us up for the remaining portion by giving us a clear picture of what was happening here in God's Old Covenant. Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And what had happened there is they had drawn near to the Lord with strange fire, the text says. They were not following God's commandments as to how to offer uh, incense and sacrifice, and so God killed them. That's how God's holiness works. You can't just approach God's holiness willy-nilly. There's a particular way to approach God's holiness. And under the, the old covenant, you had to follow everything perfectly or you were going to face severe consequences. And in the case of Aaron's sons, they faced death. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil for the mercy seat that is on the ark, uh, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. Okay, so he's trying to protect Aaron here. And if you approach God the wrong way you will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So he's going to go into God's presence in this most holy place. Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for the sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. As we've seen earlier, the high priest had to not only make atonement for the people's sin, but for his own sin because he himself was a sinner. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may send away into the wilderness to Azazel. And so all that's happening there is there's going to be two goats. One is going to be used for slaughter, and the other is going to be sent away in the wilderness. And the symbology there is that Israel's sin is being taken away from them. Aaron was in charge of this. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself in his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals from the fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense before the fire on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. So there is a very particular way to handle God's presence and going into God's presence and atoning for the sins of the people and, and, and knowing that God is trying to protect Aaron from death because if he enters God's presence the wrong way, he will, in fact, die. 
And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy, uh, on the, uh, front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Very detailed here. I, I'm glad I'm not Aaron because I'm going to mess this up probably. Then he shall kill the goat uh, of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. That is what the priest and the high priest would be doing in Israel. Verse 6 of Hebrews now. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. That's what we just read in Leviticus 16. But... The author wants us to see, he wants us to read what we just read in Leviticus 16 with a keen spiritual perception of what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us in the very structure of that tabernacle. This is not incidental, it's not arbitrary. God meant something in the way he designed the tabernacle. And so we are to read that episode and that scripture in Leviticus 16 with Spiritual eyes, as it were, to recognize the significance of what's going on there. Look at what he says in verse 8. By this, namely the structure that he just got done talking about, the structure that he talked about in verse, verses 1 through 5, and then the work of the priests, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. What does he mean? What is, it, what is the Holy Spirit teaching? us with the structure of the old covenant tabernacle. Well, think about it for a moment. Just think about what was happening in Israel. You had the God of the universe come to fellowship with you, but the only way you had fellowship with him is if you had a select group of priests who were allowed to go into the holy place and do some sacrifices on your behalf. And then only one person out of that group who was allowed to go into God's actual presence on your behalf you didn't really have any kind of engagement or interaction with the actual presence of God according to this tabernacle structure. So long as the tabernacle remained, this is the point now, so long as the tabernacle remained, God's people could only meet with God once a year on the Day of Atonement and only through the mediation of priests and an elaborate sacrificial system. That's a pretty restricted way to have fellowship with God, wouldn't you say? But that's part of the point. Now, let's look at verse 9. This is a strange phrase. It's a challenging phrase. It's hard to interpret. I'm going to give you my interpretation and see what you think. But verse 9, it says, he says, makes this phrase in the ESV. He says, which is symbolic for the present age? What is symbolic for the present age? Is the author saying that the structure of the tabernacle is symbolic of the present age? That's the way that the ESV seems to put it. Or is this description that we just received of the tabernacle and the priestly work, is the description of the tabernacle meant to be an illustration for our present time period in order to teach us something? And I take that view. 
And I think the NIV gets it right this way. The NIV says it this way. This is an illustration for the present time. That's how I take it. In other words, the structure of the tabernacle and the ministry of the priest shows us that so long as the old covenant remains in force, there is no universal access to God. That's what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through the structure of the tabernacle. So long as that's the way you get access to God, then it is a very limited way of access. Only Levitical priests in the holy place and only one person out of all of Israel once a year gets to go into God's actual presence. So long as that structure remains, there's no universal access to God. The question you want to ask yourself is, why? He tells us why. Latter part of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. Here it is. This is why. This is why if the tabernacle remains, you don't have universal access, universal access to God. That cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. That reformation was the time then when Christ the Messiah would come and fulfill all that the Old Covenant pointed towards. The The Old Covenant system could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That means a person's conscience could never be fully satisfied by the blood of animals. Now, true believers in Israel, they looked beyond the animal sacrifices to God's mercy, and a coming Messiah, hopefully, who would be their savior, the limited view they had of that, they were looking, true believers would look beyond the sacrifices, knowing intuitively that this this can't be it. There's got to be something more, and we'll even see that in one of Israel's leaders, namely David, in a moment. But in and of itself, the old covenant sacrificial system could not cleanse the conscience. It could not cleanse the conscience from the guilt of sin because it only dealt with externals and only dealt with washings. But this old covenant system is now set in direct contrast. See, the reason he did all that is now to contrast all of that now with the new covenant. And like I've said already, verse 14 is really the conclusion that we're supposed to be drawing towards. The the, the climax of the passage is really found in verse 14. Now let's turn to verses 11 to 14. What's going on here? Eternal redemption and inward cleansing. The work of Christ in the new covenant. Eternal redemption and inward cleansing. Notice what he says in verse 11. But when Christ appeared, this is now the time of reformation, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he did what? What did he do? Well, he is coming as a high priest of the good things that have come. See, He wasn't a Levitical high priest, as we've seen, right? We've spent several weeks discussing and studying how Jesus was not a Levitical priest. He was a Melchizedekian priest. He didn't enter into an earthly tabernacle. He entered into a heavenly tabernacle. He even says that. He says that in the latter part of verse 11. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places and not by the means of the blood of bulls of Uh, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Jesus didn't enter into a mere 
representation of the presence of God, he actually entered into the very transcendent presence of God, going before his heavenly father. And he didn't go with the blood of animals, he went with his own blood. Therefore, Jesus secured, as it says here in the text, eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. His work provided full atonement for all his people for all eternity. Full covering, full payment. Never again does his work need to be repeated. It happened once, some 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside Jerusalem. Even in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, he writes, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He secures an eternal redemption. You don't need to be sitting here today if you're a believer wondering if somehow you can be cast out of this covenant because Christ secured for you an eternal redemption. You won't be sitting in eternity in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, having fellowship with each other and worshiping the Lord, wondering, is there any chance that I could be cast out of this wonderful situation? No, because Christ secured an eternal redemption. He covers all of his people's sins so that they'll never be judged for it. What does the word redemption mean? Well, the word redeem means to purchase someone, particularly from slavery. Who did Christ redeem? He purchased his people from slavery to sin. And as we saw in chapter 2, slavery to the fear of death. When you are not right with God, death is your enemy. And you live in perpetual fear of it. But when you've trusted Christ and the conscience is wiped clean and you're now at peace with God, you're no longer a slave to the fear of death. Why? Because Christ has redeemed you from that. He's purchased you from that. Purchased you from slavery to sin. Purchased you from slavery to the fear of death. Purchased you from eternal condemnation. The high priest's work only lasted, as it were, for a year. Jesus' redemption lasts for all eternity. But not only does Christ secure an eternal redemption and eternal forgiveness of sin, his work is superior because it purifies the conscience. And this is where I want to camp out, from for a, uh, camp out for a while. Notice how he says, verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And there he's just explaining in, in some detail how the sacrificial system worked. They, all it was for was for ceremonial external cleanness. That was it. That was all that it did. But verse 14, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's something the old covenant could not do. It only dealt with the outside of the person. It could not ever deal with the conscience. Isn't it all about the conscience? We can't live without a clean conscience. And the old covenant in and of itself couldn't clean the conscience. You would look at those animals and look at those animals being slaughtered, even your own animals that you bought to be slaughtered, and it couldn't cleanse the conscience. And David even talks this way in, in Psalm 51. In, in Psalm 51, David is penning his repentance. He's writing down how he repented after being confronted for his sin with Bathsheba. 
And he recognizes that he needs something more than just these animal sacrifices. He needs something more. He needs something here, inward, in the conscience. Listen to how he talks in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Later he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. David knew he needed inward work. All the sacrifices in the world cannot cleanse the conscience. There's only one sacrifice. The old that can cleanse the conscience. The old covenant provided outward ritual cleansing so the priests could go into God's presence and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Only the blood of Christ can provide inward cleansing of the conscience. But how does it do that? Because I'm sure there's some of you today, even believers here today, wondering, I, I need that conscience to be cleansed. How does Christ's blood cleanse the conscience? Here it is. How does Christ's blood cleanse the conscience? The blood of Christ provides inward cleansing of the conscience because it effectively atones for the guilt of our sin. You you no longer bear the guilt of your sin if you've trusted in Christ. Our conscience becomes defiled when we sin and it testifies against us that we are sinners in the presence of a holy God. It does testify, our conscience testifies that we have sinned against the Lord, that we have sinned against his perfect law. And it happens all the time because we continue to sin. Even believers continue to sin. What do you do when you sin? And your conscience begins to tell you you're a sinner and you've sinned against God and it becomes defiled. What do you do? Well, religious people try to relieve this burden by more religious rituals by more repetitive prayers. You can just see it, just scan across the world's religion. How how are people dealing with a defiled conscience? Rituals, repetitive prayers. You want to back out a little bit from just religion? People try to ease their defiled conscience by philanthropy, by doing good to others, or by giving up sins during certain seasons to cover up for the sins that they committed in other seasons. But all of that stuff, all of that stuff is just as effective as the old covenant. It's just dealing with externals. It's not doing anything. None of it can provide inward cleansing of the conscience. You could give until you have no more money. You could pray repetitive prayers starting now to the day that you die and you wouldn't touch your conscience. Your conscience would remain defiled In fact, it probably would just be smothered now by that constant religious ritual and possibly even seared. None of that can touch the conscience. And it's no coincidence, I believe, it is no coincidence that the Roman Catholic Church, who in their formal teaching has rejected the New Testament gospel, in their formal teaching, they have rejected justification and salvation by faith alone. They've rejected it in their formal church teaching. It's no coincidence that a church that does that has historically also been focused on outward form and ritual and grand cathedrals and priestly vestments. Don't miss, it's, it's not a coincidence. 
The two things go hand in hand. There's a focus on the outward form because there's no inward reality created by the new covenant. Where the gospel is lost, outward form will take hold. And the concern over outward form is exactly what the author is talking about when it talks about dead works. This concern over outward form and outward glory. It's just dead works. It's not just the Roman Catholic Church though, is it? You can have professing Christians who haven't experienced inward cleansing from, uh, of the conscience who are obsessed with external form, just like the Pharisees were. People who are concerned with appearing righteous to others on the outside, so they focus on non-biblical concerns like the kinds of clothing you wear or the way you comb your hair or style your hair or the kind of car that you drive or meticulous attention to certain religious practices. All the while, their hearts are corrupt and their consciences are burdened with more and more and more sin. Legalism takes hold anywhere a person's conscience has not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. The two have to go hand in hand. And you can apply this across the board, across religions, across people. Outward form takes hold when the conscience has not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But oh, how wonderful it is to have the conscience cleansed. How wonderful it is to have a good conscience. This is why a good conscience is so central in the New Testament. Maybe you've never noticed this before. It's central in the, new conscience, uh, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. The blood of Christ is different than the Old Covenant system because it effectively removes the guilt of sin from our conscience. Our consciences are defiled because they're guilty. Yet the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, cleanses our conscience because he bore all the guilt for our sin, all of it. I will never tire of telling you that Christ paid for all of your sin, all of it. And some of us need God's grace to, to believe that this morning, I think. I think we need God's grace to believe it every morning, quite honestly. Christ's death on the cross was infinitely sufficient to cover every single sin you have ever committed or will ever commit. Now, your sins are great, and they feel great, and my sins are great, but we need to hear this. Christ's blood is infinitely greater. Some of us have a very sensitive conscience, and that's good. But when we focus so strongly on the depth and the extent and the, the height of our sin to the expense of recognizing that Christ's blood is infinitely greater than all of our sin, then we are going to be in spiritual trouble. Now, some of us may have come to church this morning with a defiled conscience because you sinned grievously this week, maybe even this morning, maybe this month, I don't know. And your heart is heavy, and you found it very difficult to worship this morning. You found it very difficult to meet with God this morning. You wanted to. You wanted to sing His mercy is more, but you're just not feeling it. Why? Because your conscience is defiled. What can you do? There's only one thing you can do. It's to avail yourself of the conscience-cleansing burden-lifting power of the death of Christ. Jesus Christ, the sinless, blameless, unblemished, infinite Son of God, became man, shed his blood, and died to pay the penalty in full for every sinner who believes in him. 
His work removes the guilt of all of our sin from our consciences and therefore purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And this is such an important word. You can't live without a good conscience, without a clean conscience. You can't maintain a lively faith without a clean conscience. You can't live with joy without a clean conscience. Do you know how Paul summed up his entire ministry? Listen to how Paul summed up his entire ministry. This is amazing to me. First Timothy 1.5 But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's pretty simple and straightforward. What's Christian ministry all about? It's to make, people, make, people, uh, make sure that people love each other and they have a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that Christ died for the very purpose of providing his people a clean conscience. And you might say, Derek, you don't even know how bad my sin is. It's really bad. And I say, perhaps. I, I, perhaps I don't know. Probably don't. But it's not important. I don't need to know how bad your sin is. I don't need to know how terrible it was. Because I know that there's no sin that Christ's death can't atone for. That's the greatness of Christ. That's the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is found in his ability to fully atone for every single sin that you have committed, whether that sin is in word or thought, in deed or desire. This is where we need to see our sin. Now listen, because I know that some of you have a very keen sense of sin and the holiness of God. So this might be jarring to you, but we need this. You need to think of your sin as a grain of sand next to the mountain of Christ's atoning work. You afraid to think like that? I know some of you are afraid to think like that because you're thinking, whoa, what, that, what could that lead to? Uh, joy and holiness, that's what could, it could lead to. Your sin in light of Christ's glorious atonement is like a grain of sand against a mountain. Of course our sin is serious, but our punishment was laid upon Jesus whose infinite worth overshadows your sin like Mount Everest overshadows a little pebble at the base of that mountain. That's how we have to think about Christ's atonement. Let Jesus have his glory. It's to his glory to swallow up your sin in his infinite sufficiency. He receives glory when you believe in him and trust in him that he has covered all of your sin. I used this illustration with the evangelism team yesterday, so forgive me, evangelism team, but I, I, I hope it's helpful for to the rest of you. I'm afraid some of us think of Christ's atonement this way. We, we're going to the store, and we need to buy $100 worth of groceries. And we're going, and we get there, and we get the $100 worth of groceries, and we go to the checkout line, and they ring us up, and they say, $99.98. And you're like, I think I have it. I think I have $100, $100, oh, two cents over. I, I, oh, whew, I made it. I got it. There it is. Oh, good thing I paid for it. That's not Christ's atonement. Now, in both cases, you got, you got it paid for, yes. But it's more like going in and needing to pay for $100 worth of groceries and actually you bring in a briefcase full of multiple $100 bills adding up to, 100, uh, adding up to a million dollars like you see in the movies and throwing that on the table and she asks, do you have enough money to pay for the $100 of groceries? And you click it open and you be like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I got this. And you hand her a $100 bill and you close the briefcase and, and you leave. That's the atonement of Christ. It's not just barely covering your sins. 
We're talking about the infinite Son of God, whose atonement was precious, so precious to the Father that he received it and accepted it, and it can, can now cover sufficiently all the sins that you have ever committed and ever will commit in this life and secure for you an eternal redemption. The Old Covenant teaches that no amount of external ritual can cleanse the conscience. And this should be a huge motivation for those who are in other religions to come to Christ. If the elaborate religion that God himself delivered 3,500 years ago to his own people can't cleanse the conscience, guess what? Your religion can't cleanse your conscience. And if you are someone who doesn't believe in God and is not a part of a religion, your good works and all that you do to try to appease your conscience, that's not going to do it either. Only Jesus' death on the cross can do that because only Jesus' death on the cross covers the guilt of all of your sins. Stop delaying and come to Christ today and receive the blessing of a good and cleansed conscience delivered to you by the Lord Jesus. Those of us who know God through Christ, this is a, a reminder again that we need the constant application of Christ's work in our lives. Christ's work does not need to be repeated, but the application of it does need to be constantly just reminding ourselves, washing our minds, washing our consciences with the truth of what Christ has done on our behalf and the sufficiency of it. We need to constantly remind ourselves of that completed sacrifice so that we can enjoy a renewed cleansing of our consciences. We need to go to the Lord, as 1 John says, and confess our sins knowing that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to believe and ask God for eyes to see the sufficiency of what Christ has done so that when we do sin and we go to him, when we confess that sin, we can receive that forgiveness and that cleansing and walk out of that time with the Lord with a renewed joy because our consciences are clean. I can attest and I know you can attest that there is nothing like a clean conscience. I am persuaded that most of the mental health issues to this day are issues of a defiled conscience. And Christ provides us with the way to have that conscience cleansed. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him to grant us the faith to apply these wonderful truths to our hearts so that we can experience the joy of a clean conscience. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for an incredible text of Scripture. Uh, there is nothing better than a, a cleansed conscience. We can have sweet communion with you when we have a clean conscience. We can have joy when we have a clean conscience. We can have boldness and confidence and conviction and stand for truth when we have a clean conscience. We can witness boldly for the, for the gospel with a clean conscience. We can face trials and struggles and suffering with a clean conscience. But without a clean conscience, I don't think we can do any, any of those things well. So I do ask that by your spirit, by your mercy, that you grant everyone here today, through knowledge and faith in the gospel, a clean conscience. And I'd ask you to do that work for your glory and for our joy. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.